I'm Maxine McHugh, and this is Talking Teaching. Because if you can change a person, you could change a class. And if you change a class, you could change a unit of classes. And that's what we've got here. If you change a unit of classes, you could change a school. And if you could change a school, you could change a community. If you could change a community, you can change a city. Change a city, you change a state. Change a state, you can change Australia. Change Australia, you change the world. Any teacher working here is influencing a child that's actually changing the world. Mr Knoll, as he's known to his very young students at the very new South Melbourne Primary School. Noel Crease is principal of Victoria's first vertical public school. That's right, it goes up, not out. A real school of the future and one for the entire community. As you'll hear later in the podcast, there are both challenges and great opportunities when it comes to working in these smartly designed new learning spaces. So, welcome to our very first episode of Talking Teaching. I work at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education, and this is a series aimed at educators and school leaders across the country, people who want to be part of a lively conversation about the profession, whether it's classroom practice or the latest in educational thinking. Now, like teaching these days, we take a team approach, so you'll be hearing contributions from my colleagues, Kerry Elliott. That's me. And Sophie Murphy. Hi there. And putting all this together is our sound engineer, Gavin Neighbour. He composed the signature music for this podcast. Thank you, Gavin. So that's who we are. As for what we're about... Well, we all know that teachers cop it every which way. Everyone on the planet, just about, has a view, and often a shrill view, on what those teachers should be doing. And a lot of it is not very helpful. We want to do something different. We're not Pollyannas, but what you'll hear from the TT team will be positive. In each podcast, we'll aim to highlight the many thoughtful and successful approaches that are playing out every day in Australian schools. Yes, there are some red lights flashing, and we can't ignore them. But the fact is, Australian schooling is in pretty good shape. Expectations are higher, and the training of our teachers is becoming much more demanding. Importantly, the expertise of teachers is now recognised through a set of nationally agreed standards that are defined and validated by the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership, AITSL for short. Now, this is a big shift, and we're right at the start. That's what we're going to zero in on now. At a recent conference in Canberra, Aitzel brought together a group of teachers from across the states and territories who've all gone through the certification process and are now qualified to call themselves highly accomplished or lead teachers, HALTS for short, or HALTERS. In a moment, we'll hear from Aitzel's chair, Professor John Hattie, and from his American counterpart, Peggy Brookins, who oversees the American teaching standards. But first, Sophie Murphy was at the conference for Talking Teaching and found herself in the middle of a pretty interesting conversation with a group of certified halters. So I'm the first certified halt teacher, uh, sorry, highly accomplished teacher in, in Adelaide. So I was certified in 2014. I did it because I wanted to be the best I can for the students I teach. 
and I felt that it was validating my practice and it gave me a lot of confidence to then um, help other teachers and grow capacity of the teachers at my site and help them be the best they can for the students that they teach too. From the person that the teacher that you were and the teacher that you are after going through that process, have things changed for you? It's changed me as a teacher. I'm far more confident to talk about my practice and I'm far more confident in saying that I have an impact on my students. I'm also more happy to share my practice with other teachers and know that I can do a good job and I am a good teacher in my classroom and share it widely. I felt I was looking for really good quality professional development and I feel by taking this path I was able to really reflect deeply on my practice, really look at how I was working with children, how I was communicating not only with the students in my class but my colleagues, the wider school community as well and how through going through certification can have the best impact on the students that I work with and the wider school community as well. I really didn't know what I was getting into when I decided to pursue national certification. I had never met a HALT. I had taken on the position of learning and teaching coordinator and it had been a natural development in my teaching career that I'd come through as an early career teacher and gone through the proficiency process and it just seemed natural to me that I would then be the first in my school context to go forth with the voluntary level of highly accomplished. We've made extraordinary bounds in the, the few short years that I've become certified because I think in some way it just makes them trust that I see things on a holistic level and now these networks and powerful connections that we're bringing to St John's College in Dubbo is giving us access to things that we probably never would have been able to understand or have the support to achieve. Becoming a hall is outward looking. Um, it's very easy for many of our teachers, and I certainly was that, that for the first few years of my career, to be in my classroom and see that as my area of impact. And um, whilst still doing a good job, there was more that I should and could have been doing in that space. I think we are better together. That's one of the, the secret recipes to, to the success of the Holt Network. We are better together. And as a Holt, it's incumbent on me to go back to schools and to build that culture that says we are better together. I can't accept mediocrity again. Um, it's no good just to go back to my class and just be okay because I know what highly accomplished and leader looks like. You're in a community that has, or a school that has many halts then, mm. more than one. Is it a different picture, I guess, that you've got this collaboration with other halts and that your principal then is able to really understand what to do with you and how to maximise the impact that you're having as opposed to perhaps doing it in isolation? Prior to having these standards, you know, we had this feeling about what an expert teacher looked like and we kind of knew that some teachers were having a greater impact than others. But with the introduction of those standards, you could pinpoint it and that could then be articulated to everyone. And so this is why I am an expert teacher because I am doing X, Y and Z. Mm. And so it just gives this common platform for everyone to be able to say, 
say, right, this is what expert teachers look like and this is what expert teachers do. We have now joined an era where we are not wanting this to be an elite group, that this is to become the norm and that will only ever have a positive impact on all of our students in all of our care. So I think I'm going to bring my whole voice back and make it loud, but I finally feel like I have the right points of arguments to perhaps sway some of the um, incredible educators in my room to take on this journey. That's just a flavour of the discussion among a group of highly accomplished teachers at the Canberra Summit. As I said, it was organised by the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership and the summit heard from a range of local and international guests. Among them, Peggy Brookins, the head of the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards in the United States, and from AITSL's chair, Professor John Hattie. Both of them joined me now in the studio. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Now, John, it sounds as if there was really quite a buzz at the summit from those teachers we just heard from. It was. In one sense, it was a bit of a loving in that it was very, very positive and very reinforcing. And to get a a group of excellence like that in one room, the mood was incredibly positive, remarkably high, and they have so many ambitions. And quite frankly, we just need to get out of their way. I gather a strong point of feedback from the teachers was that being certified as a highly accomplished teacher's has made many feel that much more confident, you know, as if their practice has really been affirmed. Well, I, I think it's a fascinating observation that in the teaching profession, there is no reliable way of making that attestation that you are amongst the top ranks of our teachers. Uh, a lot of uh, testimonials from principals, a lot of comments, but just to do it in a way that looks at the impact on students. And that's what the highly accomplished and lead teachers have gone through a massive process to demonstrate that that impact. And it really is a statement about excellence. And for many, that is really an incredible feeling and an accomplishment in their profession. Well, just explain that process for us. What does a teacher have to do to get certification? Well, it, it varies a bit by state, but certainly there is a major component in putting in a portfolio of evidence of your impact on students. This isn't writing how great a teacher you are and what kind of things you do in the staff so you're room. So you're not looking for motherhood statements? No, not at all. <laughs> and whilst those things are in there, because we do care about being involved in the community of the staff room and across the sector. It is primarily about the impact on the students. And this is where we've learned here in Australia a tremendous amount of what the National Board has been doing for close to 30 years, where they've refined their instruments to do this. And a lot of that mimics that kind of work. It's quite intensive. It takes quite an amount of time. It can take up to one or two years to put the portfolio together. It's then judged at each state. Uh, in terms of does it meet the standard. Who does that judging? Within each state, the states have their own assessors trained. Our role in AITSL is the moderation. Because um, as you know, the, uh, Maxine, there are four levels in the teaching standards, graduate, proficient, highly accomplished and lead. And this is the big jump from proficient to the highly accomplished and lead. Obviously, there is another set of standards related to the lead part of the highly accomplished to lead. But we decided to form those two groups together, and the acronym is interesting. They call themselves HALTERS, uh, and they've really created an incredible momentum. But the standards are quite high. They're quite rigorous. But clearly, we have a number of these in Australia who meet those standards, and that, that's exciting. Peggy, can I bring you in the, at this stage? Because you've been down this path in the United States. Yes. How do the professional standards operate across the 
the 50-odd states. So much like John talked about, we're national standards. And the board, we're in 50 states. So we're not governed by states, essentially. Uh, All of our assessment is, is a little bit different than what halts would go through because we're a national assessment. We're assessed in one place. Um, We go through a series of of rigorous, what we call four components of content knowledge. The second component would be around differentiation and instruction. The third would be around the teaching and learning environment where there's video cases that are uploaded with commentary. And then the fourth would be the effective and reflective practitioner. And throughout, no matter where you are, um, you are still assessed nationally for going through this rigorous progress to obtain your certification. So in fact, how have the standards, would you say, um, helped to change or perhaps even transform teaching? Oh, much like um, what ATSL has done with highly accomplished teaching is our focus, too, is on how do we affect student outcomes. And in order to do that, you know, we have a set of standards that students have to maintain and and reach. We also have that rigorous set of standards that teachers have to maintain and reach. And our focus is how do we have an effect on student achievement? And how is that clear, consistent, and concise with evidence that supports it. There's a performance assessment that supports that and research that backs that up. So we're looking at, uh, over the last 15 years, uh, research that says if you are board certified, then you are having an effect within the classroom. Though important words you use there, I think clarity and consistency. What would you say is the stage you're at? And I know this would be variable across the states, but in terms of achieving that so that you can say that you're really, you know, boosting student achievement, where would you say you're at? I think anybody who has become board certified is there. You're actually teaching to a set of standards and you're reaching a set of standards. You're measured against a set of standards. And I always say to other people, I was not measuring myself against someone else. I was measuring myself against a set of standards to make me better than me. And when we do that, it takes kind of the bias out of that to say, you know, just because you're not certified doesn't mean you're not a good teacher. It's that you haven't measured yourself against this set of standards to kind of say, all right, now I've sealed a deal here. John, to bring this back to Australia, I guess we've got a way to go, haven't we? We're in the third year now of, of applying the certification. The biggest take-up would be in what, New South Wales and the ACT? Would I be right? New South Wales, ACT and South Australia. Uh, Queensland's uh, just come in line with the pilot this year and then going to full next year. Tasmania's coming on. Northern Territory's been in it from the beginning. Uh, West Australia are not in it at the stage anymore. They've got highly accomplished lead teachers there and Victoria's yet to come on board. Victoria, I gather, is saying, or the official certainly in the Department of Education is saying it's on the agenda, but they're, they're laggards at the moment, aren't they? Oh, come on. We're always <laughs> ahead of the rest of the nation. But yes, um, I sincerely hope that is the case and each state has the right to do what it wants, but certainly they have started this year with their leading learning teachers, which are very similar to Holtz, but it's not part of the national scheme. And it's kind of, as Peggy was saying, that when you get that robust uh, independent assessment of highly accomplished, you really do create a profession that can esteem itself by recognising that excellence. Let's be a bit more specific. Where you have nationally certified highly accomplished teachers, 
What would I notice about that kind of teacher in a particular school? What would they be doing? Well, it's not necessarily so much what they would be doing. It's what is their impact they're having on their students. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's harder to see, particularly if you talk to teachers in a staff room. It is looking at the evidence and how they think. Like, how do they think about their impact? Is it just narrow and student test scores? Or is it the whole development of the child? Is it the nature of how they run their classrooms? And certainly looking at the evidence that came from the national board work, is their work that they do with their students have the right proportions of surface and deep understanding? Uh, and those are the kind of things that they're assessed on. And certainly we know from the work, particularly from the, the National Board, that the nature of what they do in their classrooms is quite different. Yes, we do want them to have, particularly at the highly accomplished and more so at the lead level, we want them to have more involvement in working with other teachers, not only in their school, but across their school. And I point to the wonderful example that the Holtz themselves generated in their first year, where we pointed out the problem we have with mentoring in the first two years. So they said, how can we help? And so what they do now is that any teacher in the first two years can get on this app, ask, how do I do this? What do I do here? What's going on? And by that afternoon, 10 to 12 highly accomplished and lead teachers get on and answer them. So they've created a community outside their own classrooms to work with other teachers. And that's one of the defining attributes of what we want in the leadership amongst teachers. These are the very best teachers staying in the classroom. That's an important point because I notice if you go through the seven standards, at, at every point, there's this emphasis on helping and working with other colleagues and helping them to boost their learning. I mean, that's absolutely embedded in those standards, isn't it? That's absolutely critical, Maxine, but one of the problems that we're discovering is that in some schools, principals struggle to know how to use this expertise. Uh, like in many cases, it's the principal's role to be the instructional leader. And so what these HALTs are doing themselves now is creating their own pathways, creating their own opportunities. Sometimes they do work outside the school. Sometimes they're working stunningly within the school. But we have this incredible expertise that's kind of been under the radar a bit, but they are there. And so how do we actually can grow them and make them a critical part of the teaching profession as what we're working on and what they're working on now? Peggy, you were nodding in agreement oh, there. Absolutely. But there's this question of widening and, and building expertise across teachers, across among the highly accomplished teachers. So we've had 30 years uh, of experience at doing this where the halts are early in the process. And the things that we've learned over the years is uh, we have 64 networks around the country. And those networks of board-certified teachers are the mentors for new teachers who are coming in. They're also the mentors for teachers who are going through this rigorous process. They also are advocates for students. Uh, if there's policy, they have a voice to say, here's what should be part of policy versus having uh, a, a policymaker not fully understand the connection to the classroom and the implications of policy that they may put in place that may be detrimental. They can do that as advocates as well. And, and then we're looking at the transformational nature of going through the process within a school environment to change culture and climate within schools. So they have a big role in talking about what it is to go through the process, what it is to to go very deep within a classroom. And I often got asked the question, uh, what was it like before you were board certified and what is it like after you're board certified? And I'm saying it's worlds apart. And I take them through what a lesson would look like prior to becoming board certified and what a lesson would look like after. And John, when you said, yes, the, the deepness and the richness of that lesson for me, it was more about application. 
it's not so much what you know, it's what you do with what you know. And if you cannot apply knowledge, there's no sense in having any knowledge because there's nothing you can ever do with it. So the fact that we started our students off thinking about why am I learning this? How am I going to use this? How do I apply this? How do I connect it to other knowledge? How do I connect it to other subjects? And in what ways is it valuable to understand and build other knowledge on what I'm learning? Because our focus is on children. And it's not about the I, it's about the we. And the we is what moves student achievement forward. Mm, that's nicely put, isn't it, John? Beautifully put, absolutely. <laughs> I can just see a teacher saying, yes, that's absolutely right. Like I was listening to one of the, the Holtz and the Summit, uh, Glenna Stewart from the ACT, and she gave a dinner presentation, uh, always a tough gig to have, and she started by saying, I'm not a very good teacher. Her final line was, now I know I'm a great teacher. The transformation in Glennis, as she portrayed it to us, was dramatic as a consequence of going through this. She's close to retirement. She could have easily spent the last 10 years coasting. She didn't. So mm-hmm. why? What was central to that transformation about how she saw her own practice? When you have to put together a portfolio, you deeply have to reflect on what you do and the impact you have. And in doing that, I think not only did she realize, oh my goodness, I can actually do this. I do have this kind of impact. Look at it. But when she got affirmed that that, in fact, was the case, it's a double whammy. For Glynis, it was a major statement. And as she said, it, it uh, rejuvenated and revolutionized her, her last years of teaching. Uh, but to leave the profession knowing you're at the top of your game is a really pretty exciting moment. John Hattie and Peggy Brookins there. And I've been joined in the studio now by Kerry and by Sophie. Sophie, first with you, of course, you're at that Holtz conference where they seem to bring together so many energised halters. What's your sense, though, of how this is all travelling? I mean, what do you see as the the power, if you like, of the Aitzel standards? Maxine, it was a really interesting two days. When I think of myself as a practitioner, I was teaching for 20 years. I didn't have these standards to really reflect on my own classroom practice. I I thought that I was doing a great job in some ways and perhaps not in others, but I didn't know why. I couldn't articulate when things felt good and things didn't feel so good. And so it was really great to see teachers be able to connect a common language to say, I know I'm doing really well. Now, whether it's at the end of your teaching career like Glenis or the beginning of a teaching career, The standards are there so that teachers can evaluate their impact, evaluate their practice and say, I'm doing a great job because, or I need to work on this because. So for those people that are not HALTS or they're not in that space of accreditation as yet, then the standards give them uh, the ability to look at what works and what does great teaching actually look like. Sophie, I think you're right. The professional standards really pick up this common language about what good teaching is about. And we know from the evaluation of the initial uptake of the standards that it's being used in varying ways across Australia. We know that it's used for registration, for accreditation and for certification processes. But we know that the real power and the importance lies in that developmental means. How do we go about using it developmentally to help guide our practice. Well, now to quite a different subject. And uh, along with Kerry, I was out on the road recently looking at a brand new and very different primary school in South Melbourne. The first thing I noticed was that there was no car park. If you want to work at South Melbourne as a teacher, you walk or catch the tram or the light rail. And there's no front fence 
or any fence for that matter. And Kerry, that's only the start, isn't it? Absolutely. What's interesting is the way they're going about using these amazing spaces. Hello, beautiful people. This is basically a prototype to engage the community so that that sense of community from a child from zero onwards is engaged and disparate community can be recreated in a quasi or an old industrial estate. So that was the embryonic stage of thinking, let's make it a whole of service. Because I've seen many co-locations with a fence between the two. So you can see over at the kindergarten, but there's no marriage between those two. So we've still got work to do in that, but part of our values that we've sort of driven is around uh, character, community and learning. So the community part is really examining what is it that we've done to connect the community wider than the school community. That's the area that I was talking about here where uh, the community congregate in the morning in that little window to try and connect them, especially if the weather gets a little inclement. Lots of kids now are just playing at the front and then they're coming in at the 8.45. And almost every parent that comes goes upstairs, delivers their kid to have a look and see what's going on. So do you call them tears, floors, spaces? What I've said to my teachers at the moment, we haven't formalise the names of the spaces Mm. but we want to so that as we move through the areas I mentioned before when you're planning that one of the circles is the spaces because when we have a staff meeting I want to be able to say to a staff member what did you do with the communal space how did you use that effectively but if we don't label them as communal spaces or floors people are using different languages and they're going to be saying Oh, you mean the space which has got the thing yeah, with the window? So I don't want to do that. So have a look at this. I'm fascinated with this. There's two little kids playing there and there is literally a tram within 50 metres yeah. that potentially we see as a threat, which I understand. I understand the threat. But those two kids are not going off that grass. Let's say the parents this morning, their main questions, and the parents were of children of four years old that hadn't been engaged in what we're seeing here now, their and these were one, the parents coming through on tours. Yeah, yeah for and their, their number one question at the end was security. Why don't you have more fences? Why don't you... We can keep the kids in here. We can keep the kids in there. It was all around their own anxieties around how we were going to contain the children inside the building uh, because of the evil threat of I don't know where. And some of the threats are real. I mean, I'm not going to let kids out there just willy-nilly go everywhere without supervision. It is early days, but what do you want in terms of the teaching and learning spaces? So I think the need determines the use. So we're actually responding to the needs of the child rather than saying, this sounds like a good idea for my teaching today. So the teachers have got to be in constant dialogue and ask the, the, the question, the reflective question, is the use of space reflecting what the needs of the students are? I've got visions of kids being in front of thousands of people in the Planet Shakers that's the next door, which has got an auditorium that can hold 2,000. If I can't use the local community to engage, I'm on a tram within two seconds that gets me to St Kilda Beach for an ecological study or into the city to the aquarium or to the art centre or kids busking and performing what they've learned in class. All of those things are open to us as being part of an, uh, an urban environment. We've got local businesses that are saying, come in, where they are going to be our mentors. So if they've got a creative industry to do with marketing, why can't we use the marketing as part of our STEAM project and have the kids going to the space? Why can't we get creative and get parents of multicultural uh, families coming into our library to read to the kids when they're three-year-old to connect with the community that is multicultural? Why can't we do that? Why can't we embrace all of these opportunities? 
Noel Creese's enthusiasm for the way new design opens up a whole set of new learning opportunities, which just happens to be the subject of a very substantial Australian Research Council grant headed by Associate Professor Wes Imms at the University of Melbourne. Wes joins me now, and Wes, I know your interest in this area goes way back. Yeah, looking back on it, grade two, my teacher turned our classroom into a ship and sailed us around the world. So every day we went into the classroom, it was totally reconfigured. You know, some days if we were in one particular country, the desk would be in a particular place and things would be hanging here and there and artefacts be around. And looking back on it now, I realised that actually it was a really conscious manipulation of space by the teacher to enhance our learning. So some of that has probably contributed to some of your interests now. Do you want mm-hmm. to tell us a little bit about um, some of the projects that you're running and some of the, I guess, the research and evidence base behind this great use of learning spaces? Yeah, well, I'm lucky to be part of a research group at the University of Melbourne, which is a collaboration between architecture, education and um, medicine. We um, have the mandate to try to improve the quality of use of learning spaces across the broad gamut of those from hospitals through to schools, tertiary institutions, even corporate workplaces, because what we're interested in is the design for certain, but how the design is used and how to make it effective. And part of our research is around how do you actually evaluate that? How do you work out when teachers are actually in a space and children are in a space and they are being part of the space and using it? How do you work out if that's actually better than another configuration, another type of design. It's been a real challenge. So that was one of the projects we've worked on. And that's informed the second, the one that we're working on at the moment, which is called Innovative Learning Environments and Teacher Change. And that's a very big project that's running across Australia and New Zealand across four years. And it's focused on trying to work out ways that we can give teachers the information they need so they can use space as yet another part of their teaching tools. So thinking about our audience... What are some examples that maybe you could share with us in terms of some of your findings or some examples that you've gathered along the way through your research projects? Good teachers are always wanting to change. They're always wanting to improve their practice. We realise that teachers, to improve their practice, don't need people telling them how they should teach better. They want evidence about what they're doing so they can then themselves decide on how they should adjust and change. So a fairly early part of what we did was to start looking at the actual outcomes from teaching in these particular places. And we're able, through one of our PhD students, to come up with findings that shows that students' learning outcomes in mathematics and English are increased up to 17% when they are taught by the same teacher with the same content but in an innovative space as compared to a traditional classroom. 17%, that's quite a spike. What was happening in those spaces, do you think, that might be attributing to that? We rotated the students between three different classrooms across a period of a year and they spent a term in a very traditional classroom, a mid-level one, and then an innovative learning environment. It was the innovative learning environment that had that spike. Clearly then what we've done is isolated the space to some degree um, in terms of having that impact. We also took measures on student engagement and their sense of the, or their perceptions of the quality of teaching and those spiked in that space as well. So you had that combination of an innovative environment, which arguably caused teachers to teach differently mm-hmm. in a more engaging way and for students to engage more in the learning. Can you explain that innovative environment to us? What did that look like? We only spent about $4,000 on renovating the room. It was nothing to do with the physical environment. We didn't move walls, put in any fancy windows. We spent the money on furniture. So the innovative environment had um, American diner-type seating as well as beanbags, tables and chairs at different heights. that had um, whiteboards and computers on wheels. The teacher lost the front of the room. There was no space where the teacher actually owned. The students felt like they owned the room. The students were able to move around and form groups as they wished. 
the um, technology was improved um, through improved wireless. So the students literally could even move out of the space to work and the teacher could still monitor them through a couple of programs they could do. Probably watching and observing the students in the room, the critical thing you saw was flexibility of kids moving around doing things and that happy hum you hear when kids are talking about the learning as it's happening. And what about groups of teachers? So you've got groups of teachers probably learning from each other and observing each other as well and calling on each other for advice in those places as well. The whole concept of collaborative teaching um, is high on the agenda. We have just finished a year and a half of doing a quite extensive review of everything that's known (laughs) about these types of spaces. Collaborative teaching is one of the critical themes that comes from that. The way we view that is that it it is collaborative teaching, but it's collaborative teaching by choice. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's between groups of teachers, sometimes only two. Sometimes it's teachers working independently on agreement with the others. And again, it comes back to that concept of being flexible, of having spaces where that can actually happen quickly. Thinking about your legacy or what you want to take away from your work, your core interests, what do you want to leave? For the first time ever in our field internationally, we have been able to show that when you teach students in the innovative learning environments, the degree of their deep learning increases, which is one of the the factors that has been driving 21st century learning and teaching. So that's been heightened phenomenally. And also, interestingly, using Hattie's mind frames, which are those sort of ideal sort of ways of, of teaching, that increases. And conversely, that in the traditional classrooms, there's a very low level of deep learning. It's nearly all surface learning. And there's a very low level of teachers using those mind frames that Hattie's research proves has the highest effect. Mm. The legacy that my team will leave behind will be more evidence to show that we don't need to argue about whether these spaces are smart. They are smart. But the legacy has to be that they're only smart if actually teachers and students use them the way that they're capable of being used. So it's that notion of not telling teachers they're teaching badly. They're not. Most teachers are teaching Mm. beautifully. But you know what? If you become aware of what spaces can do, think how well you can teach and think how well your students Mm. to learn. And that one piece of survey outcome is enough to, to drive me forward and my team. Well, that's it for Talking Teaching this time. We're aiming for monthly podcasts, so tune in again at the start of June. In the meantime, tell your friends, send us your comments or write a review. And check out the many references on this website. Talking Teaching is produced by myself, Maxine McHugh, Sophie Murphy and Kerry Elliott and is recorded and mixed by Gavin Neighbour at the Horwood Recording Studios at the University of Melbourne. Bye for now. Bye for now.